This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics. Their developer toolkits provide world-class controls targeting Windows, Web, iOS, Android, Xamarin Forms, and more. Whether you're an individual developer or part of an enterprise team, they have something for you. Check out the latest today at infragistics.com. Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 55. This week, we talked to Kevin Whitkoff to compare Azure and Amazon Web Services. Node.js and io.js are merging. Is technical data a good thing? And FizzBuzz and CSS for some reason. Today, we have Kevin Whitkoff. He is a technical evangelist at Microsoft. Hello, Kevin. How's it going? Good. How are you guys? Uh, we are doing great. Thanks for coming on the show. And uh, I wanted to have a special extra full disclosure this week. Uh, both me and Kevin are currently Microsoft employees and Carl put in the notes here and Carl is not, and he's got a sad face, <laughs> but I just, I just wanted to give, I just wanted to make sure that everybody was aware of that. So, you know, these, these, are, well, not the Carl part, but the, the other part, uh, so Kevin and I are Microsoft employees, you know, these opinions are our own, but, um, um, yeah, I just wanted to, to make sure. Cause sometimes people, they, they don't like it when they find that out afterward. So I just wanted to be upfront. And uh, how are you doing, Carl, other than not being a Microsoft employee? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. Okay. So we got lots of good feedback this week. Um, the first one was our, from our friend, uh, Rob Irving. So he wrote a whole blog post called Be a Podcast Guest, which is actually a pretty cool idea. And then he mentioned some of the awesome podcasts that he likes. And we were listing that list, which we really appreciate. And it was just, it was a good post overall. So yeah, we always and, appreciate that. And he did call us out as being one of his favorite podcasts. So that was also nice uh, hearing that. Yep. Yeah, we love Rob. He's awesome. Um, and then there was a tweet. Do you want to talk about that one? Yeah, uh, we got a tweet from Arun Singh. Uh, he works uh, at Microsoft in the operating systems group. And uh, he said he just heard the latest show. Thanks for mes- mentioning the web of apps. And then he has a link to where that session is that he gave. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just say, you know, Thanks for that feedback, and uh, we'll have that link in the show notes. And uh, we're just really uh, happy that people that we talk about listen to the show, too. Yep, that was definitely really wasn't cool. planned. So. Yeah, yeah. And the feature was really cool, the web of apps. We had talked about that, um, and that, that was such a neat feature in Windows. Yeah, yeah. And then also, uh, Jason and I, uh, this past week, gave a talk to our local user group about uh, you know the announcements at Build. And I think this was another one of those things that stirred up a little bit of discussion was that feature, too. So. Mm-hmm. It's definitely some cool things that have just been announced. Yep. Lots of excitement. Uh, so if you want to get mentioned on the show, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, a comment on msdevshow.com, or leave a comment on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, or any other podcast aggregators. We tend to go out there and check all of them. And then uh, we have a really cool deal coming up. So starting next week and going on for probably about six months, uh, we're going to be picking one comment uh, from you know, one comment each week. And the person that made that comment is actually going to get a free infragistics license. So that's going to be, uh, that's really cool. So that's, you know, just more motivation to reach out to us and, uh, and tell us uh, what you like about the show or what you don't like, you know, just tell us what, what you're thinking. Okay. Let's jump into the news. So what do we got here? Why Microsoft is calling windows 10, the last version of windows. What are they getting out of the operating system business? (laughs) No, uh, apparently at at Ignite, uh, Jerry Nixon in one of his talks uh, made the comment that, you know, Windows 10 is is going to be the last version that they're working on, hinting that, uh, you know, because now uh, Microsoft is 
developing Windows as a service, you know, it's going to be just continuously updated. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have made a lot of, you know, a big deal about this, about what he said. Um, but I've heard a few people also comment, you know, an announcement this big, if this truly were no more big versions of Windows, you know, it might have come from somebody bigger like Terry Meyerson or, yeah, I or think, above that. Yeah, I think this is more just saying, hey, Windows continues to get more and more agile. Uh, I don't know how important the version number is. I mean, it's tough if you're if you're constantly delivering new features. I mean, you almost at that point, if your team is thinking in that mindset, you almost have to hold them back if you want to have kind of a big bang release of Windows. Yeah. So at the very least, it's not that there's never going to be another version of Windows that we're going to be stuck on 10 forever. But, you know, the attitude and the way that they're looking at Windows right now isn't to do something huge. It's to Mm -hmm. just continuously improve for a while. And what happens in the future, you know, beyond, you know, the short term is still up for grabs. Yeah. And the first comment here, I'm going to read it. So he's the first comment was so 10.1, 10.2, 10.3 and so on. So that that's how Apple does it. If you're not familiar with that. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it is, I think it is kind of similar to how Apple does it because Apple just, um, you know, pretty much anytime they do an announcement, they're like, oh yeah, by the way, we have a new version of our operating system and it's got, you know, feature X, Y, and Z and they don't, you know, they've been on 10 forever and it's not like they're coming out with 11. So they sort of have a similar mindset too. Oh, let's see. Just compile engine is now on GitHub. So this looked cool, Carl. What, um, what is this thing? I mean, it's a decompiler. Yeah. So Telerik has a tool called just decompile and I've used it quite a, t- a few times in the past. It's free um, to, you know, if there's, you know, a binary out there for some reason I need to look at the code, it decompiles it and lets you look at the functions and all of that stuff. Um, what they did is they put up the code for the engine portion of it out on GitHub. So if you're into something like that, uh, you want to check out their code, um, check it out on GitHub. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I love that they they put it out there in open source. That'd be kind of neat to look through. Yeah. I mean, we're always a favor of putting the work out in public. So this just, you know, fits our values too. Yep. Uh, let's see here. Running your own app at the click of the service pen button. So you talked to me about this Wednesday night and you were all excited about this. So explain this. Yeah. So I follow a, a gentleman called uh, Rafael Rivera and uh, he does a lot of just kind of reverse engineering things. And he found out that uh, if you have a surface the, uh, on the stylus, when you click the button, it opens one note. Well, uh, it actually looks up to a registry key value uh, to see which app it should open. And by default, it's set for OneNote, but you can change that and make it anything you want. And I just thought that was cool. I know a lot of people out there have Surface Pro 3s. They might be interested in changing it up. So does that end up bypassing the login? I don't. That's that's one thing I'm confused about, because you can your surface can actually be off and you well, not off, but in standby and you click the button. So when when you click the button, um, it actually makes a call into the lock screen uh, cn.dll. So it is the lock screen component where the logic is to look up what to open. Mm-hmm. So you're not, you're not changing that. It's just that when it does that lookup, you can say what it will ex- uh, open up and execute. Okay. And he did uh, put a few caveats in there. If it's something like notepad that you want to open up, well, you might try, um, it does put some parameters in there as well. So it might not make sense for those parameters to get shipped uh, to notepad. Yeah. It might try to open a file. But he says there's still ways around that. You can have a a batch uh, file or something to, you know, then execute and kind of kill off those uh, extra arguments it's trying to pass in. Okay, so use at your own risk. This this sounds uh, it sounds like for the for the hackers. Yeah, and I'm definitely one of those. So I'm already working on something fun with this. Okay, cool. Stay tuned for that. 
Uh, FizzBuzz and pure CSS. Well, I can't do anything in CSS, so <laughs> <laughs> don't ask me to do this. Like I can do, uh, I can do FizzBuzz, but if I'm in an interview and they tell me to do it in CSS, I'm just walking out. So what? No, uh, <laughs> I, I, do I do this. I thought this was really cool. Um, like like Jason says, this is this isn't CSS. So all of the logic for displaying, you know, what happens on the threes, what happens on the fives, what happens on the threes and fives is all in CSS. So. Uh, uh, the guy who wrote this has has a blog post and he has a code pen example that when you go through it, he's he's got rules that, you know, hey, I'm just going to spit out. Uh, in, first, he has some JavaScript that spits out 15 uh, divs uh, and then the CSS does um, nth of type three ends. So you get um, all of your fizzes on the three ends nth of type on the uh, fives. So you get all of those and nth of type on the three and five. So, you know, it's just, it's fairly straightforward. If you were really thinking about it, it wouldn't be hard to recreate. However, you know, it's just not something you always think of. You're like, oh, I got to solve FizzBuzz. Let's do it in CSS. Yeah. Uh, it's not something that would come forward to me, but it's just cool. It just shows you the power and flexibility of, you know, all the technology that we have around us. How does he do? So on the 15th one, it actually says FizzBuzz. Look at the code, Jason. Well, I am looking at the code. It says before... And then it says content is fizz. And for the other one, it says content is buzz. So content must, must do an append. It must not be like a replace. Oh no, he's got another one here. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, so he specifically tells, oh, that's kind of cheating. Okay. Hey, Jason, CSS cascades. <laughs> well, you know what he should do? He should uh, actually just um, uh, basically hide. Well, I guess you couldn't hide nope. it. He's got it. He's yeah. got it. He did it. No, it works. I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> it just, it's like, there's some repeated code in there that is just bothering me. Maybe, uh, maybe sense. you need like SAS or something like that to fix that. Uh, I, I think he even covers that too. So, oh, he does. Okay. Yeah. That probably makes it a little bit better. Oh, uh, let's see here. The way we look at technical debt is wrong. Explain that to me. Well, I, I, I kind of like the premise of this article. So if we look at financial debt, so once you like uh, accrue a thousand dollars worth of debt, no, no matter, even if you're not paying it off, you're accruing that interest. And no matter what happens until you pay off your debt completely, you're still owing more and more money. And a lot of times when we think about debt from the technical perspective, we still have that same uh, visualization in our head. And what this uh, guy says is there's sometimes where it makes sense to have technical debt. Um, and sometimes it's not even really debt because um, let's say, for instance, you have to put some hack job in there for whatever reason. But if it's in a portion of your code that you're never going to update, let's just say like a login thing. Once you figure out login, you get that locked down. You're never going to update that. It doesn't you if you don't pay it down, it's not debt. So I thought yeah. that was kind of a, I thought that was a, a really cool concept to have. I think the the other point that he met he made as well is it's the most important like the, even the title here the most important thing is getting the thing to the user. So mm -hmm. looking at the final product like you know maybe you have two hacks that sort almost you know it's like <laughs> two hacks don't make a right but in some cases they actually do um, or or the hack you just you just don't see it right you don't you don't see how these things were put together. I mean a lot of the stuff that we that we use every day. I mean, they use cheap components. They use things that are going to fail. Uh, but the ultimately, the end product works just fine. Whenever you look at at finance, like personal debt, we always we always have this mindset that like debt every every form of debt is just horrible, horrible, horrible. Whenever you get into the business world, um, or even in in uh, in government, like actually debt is can be good or it can be neutral. Like it's it's just another tool. Um, mm -hmm. So I would argue that this the same is here is true here. Whenever you're programming that 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 technical debt is a tool that you use, and it's 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 a strategic decision where you have to look at it from every angle. What do you think, Kevin? 
Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a, the, the, the thing is there that you want to take some debt when you're going along, yeah. just like in financial or, or technical, but you also have to um, keep track of your debt. I think that's the challenge here is that you need to make shortcuts and or, um, you know, um, get things done quickly to the point there. But the problem is, is that then we lose things along the way. I mean, yeah, I was a Java programmer a long time ago, and one of the things that happened Sorry. invariably <laughs> – no, so this is, I guess, <laughs> so um, exceptions in Java, which yeah. have been maligned, is an example of that. You can you can code something quickly and eat an exception, right, to, to do something quickly and not handle it. But unless you know you're eating it, it's going to come back to bite you somewhere down the line. Right? Oh, that's a really good point, yeah. yeah. So anyway. Yeah, keep was, keep track of it. I use, uh, I use double book accounting for all my technical yeah. debt. But I mean, that's a, a kind of weird technical example of the fact that, you know, you need to you need to make shortcuts, but you also need to, to track them so that you can go back and fix them and things like that and yep. pay off the debt, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Carl uses uh, QuickBooks to track his debt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, OK, uh, let's see here. Uh, this is awesome. Node and a lot of people are predicting this one. Node.js and IO.js are merging. So I didn't realize this, but I don't I don't know when this happened. Maybe you can tell me, Carl. Uh, so apparently Node.js was I don't know if they, they recently joined the Node Foundation or they if they created the Node Foundation, but io.js took it to a vote and they decided to join as well. So that means that they're going to merge and they're going to be run by the the Node Foundation. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot of other details on that. It's just that I think that's, you know, huge to have that solidarity. Yeah. Because yeah. a split like this, you know, would do a lot to that community. Yeah, and we whenever this whenever io.js was first announced, we were like, yeah, this could probably be good because there's choice, but you know, whenever it comes down to tooling, I mean, what a pain, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, here's here's my code. And it's like, oh, is this Node.js or IO.js? Like, you can't tell by looking at it. And yeah, so th- this, I don't know, from, from my perspective, and I'm sure there's other people that are just very unhappy that this happened. But from my perspective, this just makes life a lot easier. Okay, so should we get to it? Uh, so what we want to do on today's show, so, you know, Kevin graciously accepted uh, to come on and talk about this. Uh, we wanted to tackle the whole, um, you know, cloud provider question. So specifically talking about Azure and AWS and doing some comparisons, because I think, you know, once developers and organizations make the choice to go to the cloud, I, you know, I think there's there's kind of a stepping stone there. Um, at that point, they they might not have necessarily picked the, the cloud vendor that they want to use. So they're going to have to start looking at their options. So this question comes up like, which one should I pick? Is there, is there a difference? You know, does it matter which one I pick? What, what are the, you know, what are the consequences of, of that decision? And um, so I, that's why I thought it'd be great to have Kevin on and Kevin, do you want to give us um, some of your background so that uh, people can understand why we we're having you on to talk about this? Sure thing. Um, so back in uh, around 2003 or so, when I was that Java programmer, <laughs> I actually mm-hmm. joined Microsoft as a solutions architect um, and again, sort of like cross-platform stuff is predominant there, but it was all on-prem. Um, I sort of did that for several years with Microsoft, and then the cloud started to emerge. And of course, we had you know Red Dog and, and Zurich before, and then turns into Azure, and and AWS was sort of growing by leaps and bounds. So in around 2011 or so, I made the switch and I went over to AWS as a solutions architect for a couple of years there. Um, you know, and that was a really good experience. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, I've recently rejoined Microsoft in the last couple of three months. 
Um, and part of the reason is, is because there's a heck of a lot going on here at Microsoft now, too, and Azure has matured considerably in that time. Um, and I guess one of the things that I'll talk about is just, you know, why, you know, um, PASS plus IAS is really interesting to think about um, and what, you know, sort of predominates in one side or the other. Um, but I guess I wanted to make sure that people understood that I had uh, done a fair bit of stuff, you know, on the ground with partners and things like that over there at AWS as well. So. Perfect. Yeah. When Jason framed this discussion, he kind of framed it as only being between Azure and AWS. But are there any other major cloud players out there that we could have considered? Sure. I mean, uh, Google is the other obvious one that comes to mind. They're the third uh, in probably the ranking, um, but they're trajecting uh, quite, you know, um, well along too. And they're obviously a huge behemoth in you know, our business and, you know, they're going to do a lot of stuff. I mean, um, you know, I, from myself, I would say there's basically three large cloud providers and then there's some trailing bits after that. So that makes sense. So are there, you know, coming from the AWS side of the house, are there features in AWS that make people gravitate toward that platform? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there's a bunch of things there. First of all, um, it's an IAS model predominantly. I mean, that's the sort of cred yeah, of, of why, AWS. Why don't we explain that? So oh, okay. IAS, AAS okay. is infrastructure as, as a service. service. Right. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I mean, basically, that is, you know, putting up virtual machines that run an OS that have attached disks that have network infrastructure um, in a similar way that people are used to running things, you know, on prep today or yeah. private data. And that's centers, how right? AWS started out, right? Exactly. With, and they and, an IaaS play. And, and, and that's the way they are today still. I mean, there's some pass or passish things in there. But the vast majority of everything, and including a lot of the services that they have, you know, like Elastic MapReduce and RDS, a relational database system, everything, they all layer on top, ultimately on top of an IAAS model. So the units of, you know, management and control and everything and pricing and everything still turn out to be a set of virtual machines, a set of disks of various kinds attached to those. Um, you know, setting up the infrastructure in a way that, uh, you know, is kind of familiar to people. And I think that was, to your point of the question, that's the, the attraction of that, is that, I mean, if I'm sitting there as a developer and saying, hey, like, look, I mean, you know, yesterday or, or last year, I'd go find myself a machine um, to start hosting a, a you know, website or something like that. Um, you know, where do I find a virtual machine? And, mm -hmm. you know, IAS is, is, is the easiest way to do that that looks familiar um, to folks, right? I mean... Uh, yeah, that's that's such a good point because yeah, people people are using VMware and Hyper V, and they talk to IT and they say, "Give me a VM." Exactly, and I mean, there's 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 definitely a characteristic thing about looking for something that looks familiar to you, um, and maybe you've got an existing implementation. I mean, we work with partners, and a lot of times they have sometimes very mature you know um, solutions that they're running, and they've run on prem at customer locations for you know a long time. And so, you know, their first sort of viewpoint is very much focused around that, and they're looking at that. And then, you know, they look at the past model and say, yeah, there's a lot of advantages to that. You know, we're not denying that, but then there's some definite um, ways of reorganizing the way we've got the solution set up, um, which means refactoring and things like that. And so, you know, the you know a lot of times the easiest way, and it may not be the most efficient from a resource usage or even, um, you know, other characteristics, but the easiest way to sort of lift and shift is to get it on uh, an IAS kind of an approach. So, you know, that's, like I said, the bread and butter uh, of AWS. Um, and, you know, they've done 
you know, frankly, a lot of things to sort of start out was just pure storage and then move into compute. Um, you know, there's been a, a wide variety and evolution of instance types that pivot across different types of uh, dimensions, like some are very high memory um, for, you know, RAM intensive kind of uh, solutions, and, and they use those in some of their services too. Then there's other ones that are really storage intensive and have li- large amounts of storage. Some of them are uh, faster or more consistent types of disk storage for certain workloads, like, you know, large database workloads and things like that. Um, they've got a GPU instance type or, or two of them now that you can do um, essentially, you know, graphics, uh, in, NVIDIA stuff on or GP, GPU, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's very much focused on give me a machine of the size and flavor and, and, and attributes and everything that are important to me. And, you know, there's a bunch of dimensions there, like I say, compute, CPU, disk, network capability, other associated things like um, GPU and things like that. So. Yep, so it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, one thing to say about that, though, is, I mean, this is said in the introduction, is obviously one of the things that Microsoft is doing now, um, and thank heaven for that, is sort of woke up to the idea that IAS is important to people. And, you know, for a lot of cases, or some cases, it's definitely an, an, an evolutionary step, um, but it's the step that allows them to get into the cloud, frankly. You know, I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, frankly, you know, when I left Microsoft, um, you know, three or four years ago, um, the biggest challenge we had with Azure is just, you know, getting folks who had those conditions of existing implementations or whatever that saw, you know, moving into pass as a ideal sort of a endpoint, but uh, a fair bit of work to get there. And it just uh, seemed insurmountable um, while we're still kind of trying to sell, you know, customers and the public and everything on the value of the cloud itself. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I'll say one thing about that, too, is that, um you know, one of the things that's really good about Pass is that it does do a much better job of granularity of function and uh, resource usage. Uh, when that translates often to um, speed of deployment and update, um, being able to ability to do live updates on things like services and things like that. So you get a lot of advantages about that. But then there's, like I say, there's a cost of doing that. So one of the things that, um, you know, AWS does is that it tries to get around the fact that, you know, there's you're getting a machine. I mean, you're really getting a machine for most of these, right? Which encompasses, you know, going to find the right instance type, um, getting an Amazon machine image, which is an image that has OS plus other software, et cetera. So, you know, there's a, there's a wide variety of things there to be able to accommodate anything from a very little machine to, like I say, the beefiest machine you can ever get to do the kinds of things. And that's, that's key to that approach is given a flexibility. That said, you're still often allocating essentially a lot of resources, you know, an entire OS, um, an entire, you know, large disk, um, you know, certain network capabilities to do something that, um, you know, maybe can be done in a much more compact way. I mean, I think the other interesting thing, by the way, that for, you know, Microsoft and on our approach for IAS is, um, which is really kind of interesting, is per-minute pricing. And that doesn't sound like a lot to people. I mean, most people are running machines for, you know, hours or days or weeks or months. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, one of the ecosystems that I really focused on was uh, the media um, ecosystem, like for for folks doing either CAD and rendering, you know, uh, workloads and things like that. Um, And a lot of those things run in sub-hour timeframes. I mean, they may actually run for five minutes, right? Yeah. Yeah, you want to throw a ton of compute power at something and then then go away. Right. And these are are the highest-end machines, by the way, too. This is like a as it was a CG1 or a G2 in, in AWS now. So these are like the more expensive types. 
And if you say, you know, I need to go run something for 10 minutes, but I got to buy it for an hour. Uh, you know, there's, there's cer certainly not, um, you know, the sort of efficiencies that you're hoping to get out of that. And so the challenge there is to come up with sort of efficient ways of, you know, uh, making those instances hang around at least for the hour on the potential that you might get another request within that hour to leverage that, that hot instance or something. Um, and I think that was one thing when I saw, you know, um, and I was still back in, in Amazon at that time when I saw Microsoft announce that, I thought, you know, for specific kinds of things, that's super useful and important because, again, that just gets to the point of, you know, what's how do we work this so that we constrain the set of resources that we use uh, in one way or another to be able to really take advantage of what the promise of the cloud is, and that's pay-as-you-go, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, anyway, so, I mean – Part of this is that the devil's in the details, but some of those details are really impactful. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to some of the the strengths of each of those um, of Azure and AWS, because yeah. they are big, broad offerings, but they do have, you know, yeah, they're a collection of smaller services. Absolutely. So I think that one that I just sort of enumerated there, um, you know, That's I asked, huge. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is is less of a difference now, and I think is is actually an advantage for for Microsoft, is the fact that um, we support both models. Um, and, and our IAS offering is not as quite as rich, but it's trending much faster um, and catching up. Um, it's pretty close to what AWS has now. Plus, we have all the past stuff. So I think, you know, I mean. Ideally, you want a situation where you kind of have the ability to sort of do parts of your solution in one or the other, depending on what it needs, right? And, and existing code bases and, and needs of getting it in there and all that kind of stuff. And I think, um, you know, AWS over Azure has a lot of advantage in IAS, but I mean, the fact that it's sort of predominantly, you know, like largely predominantly IAS as a model is, a, is an advantage of Azure over AWS. Um, I think one thing that comes up too and that I've dealt with lately is, um, the structural way that, you know, um, AWS versus Azure is even organized globally and even within regions. So, um, you know, footprint wise, um, you know, we've got, we've each got regions. Um, they're organized a little bit differently. Um, the Azure has kind of region pairs for, um, geo uh, replicated storage and, and, and sort of predefined failover points, um, that are sort of configured as a, as a point of that, whereas in AWS, you kind of arbitrarily pick one, but people often pick similar pairs like U.S. East and U.S. West and things like that. Um, but by and large, we've each got regions. We've each got components within regions. Now, within a region, um, Amazon's got things called availability zones, which are essentially one or more data centers that are isolated on three different dimensions, power, uh, network, and disaster plane, you know, whatever that means. But, you know, just the fact that physical disasters. Yeah, they're not, not, they're not, they're not neighbors. <laughs> they're not neighbors, right? I mean, we say things specifically like a distance of 400 miles or something. Um, they don't actually call it out ever what the distance is. They just kind of, you know, say that it's disaster, you know, separated. <laughs> right. um, and uh, Azure has availability sets, which is essentially a very similar model, which is, you know, you create, um, you know, multiple VMs into what's called an availability set. They actually um, allocate those into different fault domains. Fault domains are also defined as a way of having distinct power network and distance. And um, And so at the end of the day, it might look like um, availability zones are distinct um, from availability sets, but I think um, probably 80% or 90% of them are the same. The one advantage I think that AWS has over Azure at this point is 
still that you can, you know, you can explicitly allocate things to availability zones, right? So in, in availability sets, you create a set, uh, it creates the fault domains and it puts them kind of where it wants to. In, in, in Amazon, you say, I want, you know, five instances over in zone A, five instances in zone B, and five instances in zone C. Um, and, and so you, you have a very explicit way of, you know, sort of managing and controlling that. I mean, you know, and the downside is, of course, you have to manage and control that. And there are some resources in Amazon that are availability zone specific. So if you create a disk or do a snapshot of a disk in one AZ, you know, you can't see it in the other AZ and things like that. But I mean, there's, you know, there's, so there's a cost associated with that as well. But I would say that's one thing that um, there's a slight edge on AWS right now. It's just a bit of a HA uh, in the way that you explicitly lay out availability zones. But yeah, and I think, I think Azure is, is adopting a similar model. It is. Look, yeah. um, I think it's central, there's like central and north central. Um, and I think there's, with a couple of the regions, you know, you're seeing like a second data center go into that region so that you have, right. you know, a data center that's close, but not too close <laughs> so that yeah. you can, you can do something yeah. similar. And that's what I'm saying is that yep. at the end of the day, the different fault domains end up being distributed across different physical locations. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I think ultimately, I mean, as, as these services mature, it sounds like both are going to have a way of handling it. Maybe it's just a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Maybe it, maybe it does come down to your decision on how you choose, but. Yeah. In, in any case, they're, you know, they've both taken this into account that, that things mm-hmm. can and will go wrong. There's, there's hurricanes, tornadoes, right. earthquakes. Carl, I'm sorry to interrupt this, but I got to talk about something that's really cool. Uh, so what I want to, I want to talk about Infragistics. So they have controls for pretty much every platform. So they have, for example, for desktop applications, they cover controls for Windows Forms, WPF, Windows 8, uh, lots of mobile controls. So Windows Phone, iOS, Android, and and also Xamarin, which is really cool. So I was working on uh, a Xamarin project recently, and uh, they have controls that will actually work within Xamarin Forms, and then they automatically work across all of the platforms. And then they also cover web, um, ASP.NET MVC, jQuery, you name it, they got it. Yeah, I'm working on a WPF app right now, and I wanted to check out some of their controls. They got an app that you can download where it has examples of everything that you need. So if you want like a color picker or something, you can go on there, you can play with it, you can toggle all the different options. They even show like all the different XAML and code behind that's needed to interact with it. It's it's a nice way to get used to uh, something before you just go ahead, jump in and and pay for it. And then they also have this amazing prototyping pool out there, tool out there called Indigo Studio. So this is really cool. I haven't seen this before, but you go out there and you can actually rapidly build an app with this application. So you can build a, a demo. So if you have an idea, you can actually prototype this and then it's usable. You can actually navigate through all the screens um, and you could show this to your stakeholders and get funding for your project. It's really cool. And then you can actually demo this right out in your browser. So there's some samples out there. If you go out and check out their Indigo Studio and scroll down to the sample section, uh, you can actually view some of these samples right in your browser, which is really cool. So you got to go check those out. And not only that, but they have community uh, made uh, samples as well. So things that other people have just donated out for you to check out. Very cool. And then there's also a lot of great enterprise solutions, such as Report Plus for making dashboards. And then also Share Plus, which is a great way to work with SharePoint in a, in a mobile application. So check it all out at infragistics.com. And there are free trials, so you have nothing to lose. And like you said, you can download these applications and check all this stuff out ahead of time. So we want to thank them for their support of the MS Dev Show. I guess there's probably a few other things, like um, back to your question, Carl. I mean, 
again, given the pivot of, of AWS on IAS, they're, they're continuing to innovate quickly about instance types and storage uh, associated with instances and things. So they've got 16 terabyte um, drives, elastic block storage drives that can be associated with VMs now. Um, and they had one terabyte drives for quite a while until a couple of months ago, they introduced 16 terabyte drives. So, you know, if you want like Uber storage associated with an instance, you can create, um, you know, you can attach 10, 16 terabyte drives to a, a VM. You can get like outrageous amounts of uh, storage. Um, and then uh, basically one of the things that I was going to say, uh, if I said this a couple uh, three weeks ago, I would have said that they've got, an edge around um, what's called provisioned IOPS EBS and, and mm-hmm. basically enhanced EC2 types. So certain kinds of EBS uh, type that actually provides a consistent high level of PI ops and, and um, instance types that have networking that's dedicated to the disk to VM transmissions. Um, but um, we just uh, GA'd our premium storage offerings and our DS instance types in Microsoft. And in fact, um, you know, the the uh, results of all that are that we can perform actually better than some of those. And in fact, if you do the costing on the way that things are costed out, it's cheaper, too. So I encourage folks to go look at Mark Brasinovich's, um blog post or Scott Guthrie's where he talks about that and drill into that. Because, uh, you know, for a long time, that was a, a big thing that was a differentiator, too, is that they had this, you know, very capable EBS uh, kind of a model and the PI ops EBS was a way to get, you know, you could raid Stripe, you know, 20 disks together. And because it was a consistency model there, you get very large effective uh, performance over that right Stripe set. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we're, we're, we're surpassing that now, which is really, you know, amazing actually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's really cool. Cause yeah, there's, there's definitely partners and customers that need that, that performance. Yeah. I mean, this is really has an impact on database workloads, high end yeah. database workloads and things like that. Um, the other thing that's sort of struck me is I sort of, again, I've been at Microsoft again in a couple months and ramping back up on Azure things like, um, auto scaling, um, which again, I think, is really key to the cloud. You know, you want dynamic, you know, resources to be spun up and spun down. Yeah, I don't want to wake up at four in the morning and and figure out how to, you know, increase my my server size. Right, and you want enough flexibility uh, for the system itself to be able to decide when it's relevant to scale and what are the units of scale. So, you know, on the first part, I'd say uh, AWS auto scaling has uh, actually richer capabilities right now in the IAS sides of it. Again, as I said earlier, I think our auto scaling on IAS side uh, has pretty good capabilities, but I think there's, I mean, there's some amazing things you can do with AWS auto scaling around, um, you know, a wide variety of built-in metrics and custom metrics, um, tying them into a a lot of the other simple services um, to be able to really scale that. But at the end of the day, you're still scaling VMs, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, the unit of scale um, still turns out to be larger. You know, I'm pre-allocating either an AMI or I'm, you know, creating a new instance, you know, uh, with some code based on Chef or something. But uh, now I've got another, you know, instance that I've, you know, bought and I'm paying for an hour or more or whatever. Um, and that's kind of where it goes back to past, by the way, is that, I mean, if there are, there are solution parts 
that actually make more sense in a very granular, specific way to spin up a cloud service or a website or a worker role. Um, you know, you can get the kind of scale and performance and, and lower cost that you get um, through auto scaling, but you're, you know, the system itself is basically got that built in. You're not like you have to configure an auto scale group, you know, to be able to do the sort of things you want it to do. So, you know, again, I think that's for maybe the theme here is, is that there's a lot more control in some of these areas, but it actually implies that you require to know what things to control. And, you know, um, you basically need, you can do things like um, custom metrics that your application even spits out, but now you have to go, you know, program those into your application and everything and have the system be able to do the things that, Mm -hmm. you know, it should do with that, right? Um, and I think there's one interesting thing that they've actually introduced in the last month or so, which is uh, the Lambda service, which is really um, this kind of a generalized mechanism for, for scaling. It's not auto-scaling, but it's more or less when an event happens in the environment, can I program a snippet of infrastructure change, if you will, whatever that is arbitrarily, and it, it will react to that and do that. So, the, again, the whole point is there's a bunch of stuff happening in my environment I should be able to automate when a change happens to that environment based on some conditions as much as possible without, to your point, explicitly having to do it, watching it, you know, getting a notification, but still having to go back and actually explicitly do something, right? So, mm-hmm. and again, I think I think our platform, you know, in the IS side as well as the, you know, is coming up there, the past side has got a lot of that stuff built in. So I think... Yeah, That's really interesting, do. right? I mean, it's like it's like you look at some of that stuff in AWS, and you go like, "Why is that there?" And you go, "Ah, oh, yeah, because I really want to make sure that I'm literally like on an hourly basis, you know, spinning up or spinning down, you know, bits of what would normally be physical infrastructure, right?" So it's kind of yeah. an interesting model. Yeah. So in regards to Azure, what about things like, um, you know, hybrid? I know that at uh, Build, this uh, Azure Stack was announced. Yeah. And okay. then the other the other big thing, and that I don't know if it exists in AWS, would be like websites. So yeah. does does AWS have any answer to to you know to Azure Stack and websites? Uh, Azure Stack, I would say not really, and I think that is a huge thing that um, that, that is a good announcement for us. I mean, um, there's a lot of folks that are trying to do essentially cloud neutral, um, you know, uh, with things like OpenStack and everything, and that is in, in a principle to sort of reduce dependency. Um, a on AWS, but also just facilitate things like an on-prem versus an off-prem model. Yeah, use the yeah. So, and just so our listeners understand, Azure Stack is basically taking Azure and, and allowing you to run those components on-prem. Yeah, on window on Windows Server. Uh, on Windows Server. Yep. Right. And so I think that's massive. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. ran into that a lot, and I mean, there are people who. Um, you know, again, customers and partners who are leveraging part of the cloud, but they also have a lot of stuff running on-prem. And to be able to, and, and that was always, again, the sort of um, fly in the ointment for sort of moving to the cloud, which is either I'm there or I'm not. Well, what, yeah, Azure, Stack, what Azure Stack does is it says I can move it around. I've got parts of my infrastructure that are in-prem. I've got my own private data center. I'm bursting over to Azure. If I could program that to the same, you know, fabric and uh, storage facilities and everything else, that's massive. I mean, I'm yep. actually looking forward to that. Yeah, and then what about websites? Uh, well, so I think the website stuff is, uh, uh, I would say the closest approximation is Beanstalk at AWS. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Beanstalk is a essentially still an IAS but predefined collection of components that 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 
create a well-defined architecture, aka a three-tier right. web app. Um, and so, you know, you deploy that, you run it as a unit, etc. You still end up with instances. You still end up with running a, a distinct, you know, RDS and things like that. Um, it looks very automated, but at the end of the day, you know, it really is, you know, a kind of a packaging mechanism around IIS versus websites. Okay. And I think you don't have as much control and, and um, auto scale. Yeah, because I just don't want to deal with that stuff. That's what I like in Azure is I can. Yeah. I can, you know, deploy from GitHub or wherever, but I can put some files in there. And actually I have more free websites than I have anything else. And right. I just, you know, yeah. here's my, here's my .NET code or even uh, Node.js, or I think Java supported a couple other languages, Python. Uh, I just throw it out there and I say, just, you know, just run my code. Like I just, I don't want to deal with this thing called a server. That's not my thing. Yeah. And I mean, I think this gets back to the point of like, you know, you want to pick maybe the most focused thing to what you want to do and you want to sort of have that as the control item and the costing item and everything, right? And I mean, this kind of gets into the container, uh, Docker container side too, which, you know, we, we both support as well is this idea that um, you basically have a, a kind of a, a container notion where you can, you know, deploy, uh, you know, very specific kinds of workload into there. Um, and it, and, and it doesn't, it doesn't drag along the whole thing, right? Um, OS concepts and, you know, physical disk management concepts and things like that. So you're kind of isolating yourself from that. But I think the one thing that, that you get out of, you know, that notion is all the other stuff that, you know, we have going on with both Docker and also, you know, the other past components just lead you to this notion that is why Docker is so popular today is that, I mean, it really does give you a lot of, you know, easy, more granular, fine grained sort of a way of, you know, deploying and running and managing and everything, you know, and, you know, you don't really, you know, have to deal with, you know, the IAS kinds of things. That said, I mean, I think, you know, just to be fair, if somebody really wants all the control and they're willing to do that and they, you know, PowerShell or other shell kinds of scripting, CLI, et cetera, you know, you want IAS. And, and so I, again, I think one of the things that I hope people take away from most of these discussions is, I think the right model is to have a rich set of pass plus IAS capabilities because, you know, this is, this is, there's no one size fits all. And even within an aggregate solution, I think the best thing is to really, you know, this is harder, but the best thing is to really look at the different kinds of parts of that, like websites, you said, you know, if you have a, if you have a part of your solution that has a website and a portal, you know, use pass or use, uh, you know, Azure websites or something. That's the easiest way to do it. But if now I have a complex workload in the back end that I have to do something with, um, you know, A, I should use a predefined service packaging in some way, or I should sort of set set that up and be able to manage and control the details of that. And I guess that's one thing to segue into in terms of Azure, which I think is another huge uh, strength that we have is I think there's a lot more maturity in some specific workload areas like business, uh, you know, big data and business intelligence. We have Power BI and things like that now are coming. Um, IoT, you know, there's been a lot of focus um, in Microsoft around IoT scenarios with Event Hub and Stream Analytics and things like that. Um, there's recent acquisition by AWS, but, um, you know, that's just something that happened last, literally in March. Mm-hmm. Uh, machine learning is, uh, is a more mature offering from Azure, et cetera. So I think one of the things that also, you know, Microsoft and Azure has done more is, you know, what are the aggregate scenarios or workloads that people really care to do? I mean, it's one thing to say, yes, I can have a manageable system, but, you know, at the end of the day, I want to build an IoT system because I'm collecting data for this kind of thing. So what components, how do they work together? Do they work together well? 
Um, and I guess the other thing to say as another segue to that is, given that we've got, you know, at Microsoft, a lot of other components that, you know, invariably go into some of these solutions, right? I mean, you've got client apps of various kinds that are running, you know, the desktop or mobile or, uh, you know, uh, you know, like I say, IoT, um, and then maybe that's devices like the Raspberry Pi 2 or something, um, the tooling that goes along with that, um, you know, even things coming up like Surface Hub and HoloLens and et cetera. I mean, these are all parts that are that are going to be part of the solution somewhere, um, and unless you're doing, you know, a headless service. And at the end of the day, it's very rare to just do that. Um, so are you, are you are you referring to like ecosystem? It's ecosystem exactly. Yeah. I mean, and and you know one of the interestingly one of the things that I did at Amazon is I spent a year in the Kindle a team uh, launching the Kindle Fire tablets. Um, so that was uh, another kind of experience over there. Yeah. And you know at the end of the day, you know that was that was a really good experience. But you know it was probably not surprising to anybody that you know there's there's sort of loose relationship between what goes on say in AWS. Um, and the, and the sort of connectivity between, you know, developing, you know, the components of, you know, Fire OS and some of the other apps, right? I mean, right, right. Um, you know, these are, these are much more sort of separate divisions that are going on and doing their own thing. So, yeah, I think we have a much better sort of connectivity between, uh, you know, the activities that are going on and, uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah. During Build and Ignite, that, um, the Azure, uh, story gave a lot about how many servers they had, how many regions uh, were in Azure. How does that compare size-wise to AWS? And should that be a factor in my decision-making process when I'm choosing between the two? Uh, That's a great question. I mean, I think one of the things that that this relevant is region exposure. Um, And in fact, Azure has more regions and more geographic uh, dispersion than AWS at this point. So it's it's available in more spots. Um, And that's important if you're in India or, you know, like if you're in, uh, you know, the Middle East or something. I mean, do you have something that's latency wise relatively close to you? Um, Size wise, um, I I think that's probably less relevant. I mean, you know, the statistics, um, you know, that the both of us say is, you know, I think we've got something like uh, a million servers or something. Um, and, you know, Azure, sorry, AWS may have, you know, two or something like that. But at the end of the day, you know, they're both incredibly large amounts uh, and they're growing every day of, of resources. And really what's, what, what's important there is, is a SLA and, and ability to get the resources that you need. And, and I don't think either of those platforms have any, uh, real issues about people, you know, getting the resources that they need at any time. So, you know, yeah. they've got excess capacity, but, you know, we've got far enough capacity to sort of handle the kinds of things that are coming in. Yeah, they're both effectively at this point infinite. So, yeah. you know, it, it, at, at yeah. a certain point, it just stopped mattering that much. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it, to Jason. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so I'm kind of curious, I guess we did talk about ecosystem, um, but, you know, in, I know we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but, uh, you know, how big of an advantage does Azure get from from other offerings? You know, I had mentioned like MSDN, uh, including free Azure dollars, there's uh-huh. Visual Studio integration, like those types of things. And, you know, you mentioned like the, the Fire OS. I mean, I can't imagine uh, Fire OS, you know, really drives a lot of AWS usage. You know, they might have their own usage, but it doesn't really make developers use AWS more. So, you know, like yeah. how important do you think that is? I think that's huge, and that's a great point. I mean, at the end of the day, we're a platform company. We, uh, you know, our, our bread and butter is, you know, developer ecosystem and developer tools and people developing solutions, as I said. I mean, 
the fact that there's, um, you know, that we, you know, put out Visual Studio and, and, and Team Foundation and, and a bunch of other tools um, and they integrate into those platforms just means that uh, when people go to develop things that include cloud um, and, and many things do today, they're just going to be much better set up to do that. Now, there's obviously a very rich open source community out there that's um, doing a lot of things in various platforms, including AWS. But, I mean, I think, um, you know, part of the challenges there is, is that, you know, people still have to sort of walk up and find what's the best one. I mean, and what's the best, you know, tool or add-in for this particular part? And is there something that goes along with one that's now inconsistent with another? And, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to characterize that as a huge problem, but it's still... Again, I mean, if, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you, you need to um, do your legwork and you need to you know, do the, the understanding and, and, and deal with some of the issues that come along with, you know, version mismatches, even in terms of sort of underlying components that are dependent on things like that. Um, so I think we, we actually have a lot of advantage there because at the end of the day, like I say, you're not just going to develop something in the cloud. You're developing a solution, quote unquote, and it invariably includes, you know, mobile stuff and things like that. Um, and I just think the fact that we've got all that stuff going on in-house um, makes a huge advantage for us. Um, so so how does the pricing compare between the two, especially since Microsoft, I believe a few years ago, said that anytime uh, AWS cuts their storage pricing, they will too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a really excellent question. I mean, from, from what I can see, um, the pricing, um, and it's not comprehensive or anything, but the pricing is as good or better. And... I mean, like I say, my one example, I actually sit down and did some of the math on the storage, you know, with our premium storage offering. Um, and, you know, part of the complexity of costing is, is that there's the resource costing and then they're off, often there's the transactional cost. Like I pay, you know, a cent per thousand, you know, uploads or something like that. So there's a lot of different components that go into pricing. Um, as far as the pricing is concerned, I'd say it's as competitive or better um on azure um for the stuff that we commonly do um i mean one of the things that's a good side of i think microsoft is um that we have long-term relationships with um customers and partners and agreements in place that um offer a lot of flexibility around things like that like enterprise agreements and whatnot so there's there's um you know, there's definitely some advantage of, of pricing, you know, depending on what level you come in on and, and sort of how that gets negotiated and things like that. Um, in the AWS side, there's really flat pricing for everybody. I mean, obviously, you know, we're both racing to the bottom um, to some degree in terms of sort of, you know, pure resource cost. Um, so I, I, I would, uh, as you said, I don't think anybody should expect that we're going to get um, shut out from, uh, you know, the resource cost pricing um, I guess the other thing to say about that, which is important, is you know there's uh, Amazon started out and and still is largely I think a self serve model, um, you know and, th- and there's a lot of things that they do to really facilitate that, but at the end of the day it's it is a lot of self serve and you know when when we work with you know small to medium to large partners and customers and everything. Um, I think you don't just get advantages out of, you know, the com- competitive pricing models and things like that. But I think you get a lot of advantages out of some of the other components of that relationship and uh, the partnering and things like that. So, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if I mentioned on the show before, but I had somebody tell me that, uh, you know, AWS is the is the Walmart of uh, 
of cloud vendors and they don't want to shop there. <laughs> and, and it was, you know, it was, it was pretty, um, you know, I don't know. It's a, it's like a pretty bold statement. I, mean, I think he was trying, I think he was trying to say what, what you're saying yeah. is, is AWS is like, you know, it, it's, it's just a different way of doing it. it. Depending on who you are, it might be might better, might be worse, but AWS says, Hey, here's the stuff we built, you know, have fun. Like you guys are developers. You, you know, you can figure this stuff out and, and we have good stuff. So use it. And, and at Microsoft, it's, um, you know, we're, we, we throw it out there, but then we also, you know, it, it seems like we work a lot closer with, with people. Cause there's people like you and me that they go to the partners and say, right. um, Hey, you know, is there anything missing? Like, what, what do you need? How is this working for you? What can we do better? Um, you know, how can we build your app? You know, how can we help you migrate your application so that we can run it in the cloud and just make it better? You know, how, how do we, how do we be better together? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, you said alluded to other kinds of facilities like MSDN and things like that earlier. I mean, I think, I think we've again, traditionally had sort of developer outreach programs. And I think it's really interesting, by the way, one thing to note is Amazon has a lot of solutions architects in AWS, relatively speaking, they have very few technical evangelists or sort of like, like leading technical outreach people. So, um, you know, they, they do that, but I mean, I, I would say that odds are probably more that, um, they start to get engaged, um, when people have done some work already mm-hmm. and, and maybe they're struggling or maybe they're not. Um, but I mean, the, the point of the matter is, is that, um, as you said, I think we, we do a lot more to, uh, try and reach a broader audience and to say, Early on, here's how you know we can recommend doing this, and here's how that facility actually works. And 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 again, somebody might walk up to it and say, you know, the thing I've always done in, is in AWS is IAS, and I look at this past stuff, and it, it doesn't sort of make any sense to me. I mean, I think you and I, Jason, mm-hmm. you sit down with folks for a brief period of time and sort of uh, uh, enumerate, you know, how the model is different and, and how it takes advantage of speed and agility and cost and everything else. And I think. When it comes to you know being more precise about what you want to do, I think people light up and say, "Oh, that's that's actually a really good model." I mean, that's again, that's why they're leaning to things like Docker and everything, right? They want to reduce the bandwidth and density and everything of all the stuff they need to know. I mean, it's it, it's incredible. I mean, there's a if you go through the AWS documentation, which is you know by the way really good. There's a lot of stuff in there, <laughs> and uh, yeah. it's you know it can be it can be daunting to kind of understand um, a lot of times what the dependencies really are and you know what influences another thing and things like that. So yeah, something that keeps popping into my head as as you're talking, you made a couple points about um, you know maybe not directly, but it was talking about density, and I what what keeps popping into my head is. It's just funny if you if you look at at the history of data centers and like companies running their own data centers. What's amazing is how much they've overpaid historically. Like it's yes. it's actually been extremely inefficient. I mean, at the last company I was at, we started out with um, eighty servers approximately, and those servers, I mean, on average, were probably at like one percent utilization, maybe somewhere between let's well, let's say less than ten percent utilization, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason that they are on separate servers is because you don't want to mix that software. You know, it's just, there's no, there was no good way to, to, to containerize those things. So then yeah. the next step was to put them in virtual machines. So now we, we went from, from 80 servers down to eight, cause we could run, you know, 10 VMs on each one. And we had a big SAN and all that good stuff. Uh, but we were still being wasteful because the host machines were still relatively idle. And now we're getting into 
you know, there's PaaS, there's Docker, there's other types of containers. It is all about removing that waste that has all, always been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, our workloads are actually getting bigger. We're starting to take advantage of more compute. Um, so, you know, you almost have no choice but to to switch to this model at some point because you need, uh, and I'm sort of, you know, selling the idea of the cloud here, not really my intent, but, um, you know, you, at, at some point you like have to do that so that you can actually just pay for what for for what you need and you might end up paying more because you might need more but at least you know your your cost is matching your utilization and historically like we have all been getting ripped off on our, yeah. on our on-prem data centers we've all been getting ripped off like horribly <laughs> yeah and i think it's just to sort of paraphrase what you said i think there's two key dimensions there mm-hmm. one is essentially the granularity and set of resources that go with the granularity right yep I mean, you want to reduce it as much as possible to just specifically what that thing you're doing needs. And when the when the unit of granularity has been a machine, there's lots of capabilities in that machine and on that disk and everything that you're not using for that thing. I mean, it's just oh, yeah. you've paid for, you know, Windows Server or, you know, or the Linux support or whatever you are. Yeah, and, and 300 it, watts of constant power. Right, and, and, and you're not using 90% of that. It's just mm-hmm. that's the packaging mechanism, right? And it's funny how... As a solutions architect, I would have, you know, work with partners and everything. And they come in with their current model and they literally try and map it and say, I've got a machine over there and it's running four gigabytes of the storage and let's find an equivalent instance type. And you go, whoa, that, no, this is not the point, right? Right. I mean, and that's one thing. The other thing is the time situation here, right? So as you said, you know, when you looked at that old model, you bought the machine, you had that machine for four years or whatever it is. You know, yeah. and like odds are that you basically not, adopted it. Yeah, well, you, it's a it's, <laughs> it's it's a capital cost, and you bought it, and you're probably going to be running it. Like there's electricity all the time and everything, and it's like again, it's just like that was the inherent model. But and that's the thing I, I kind of keep getting at is that I think one of the things that's super important for the cloud is one that you have the granularity of container for resource, and that that container has the ability to be dynamic, right? That it actually uses or doesn't use resource at a time. And that's the fundamental, you know, value prop of the cloud. And and the other one is, is that the um, ability to uh, scale it and, and have that go up and down in the way that's relevant for your solution. So, you know, your example of way overpaying, you know, uh, invariably those machines were running, you know, in the middle of the night, um, and even if they weren't, you were sitting there taking up real estate and you bought the machine and everything else, right? You, when left, I, the, you left the faucet running. You, le- you left the faucet running, you know? And, and so right now, if I can say, and this is, I, I mean, I, I can't believe how many times we have to have this discussion about scaling and, 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 you know, dynamicism of the cloud. But if you could simply say, you know, use a, a scheduled auto scaling event so that at midnight your your machine shuts down and at 8 a.m. it starts up again. You know, you've cut down a third of the time of a day that you're using a resource. You literally are wheeling the machine out of the building for eight hours and not paying for it <laughs> and then wheeling it back in. I mean, you, yeah. you can't do that in a physical sense. But I think your point is, is that, you know, the part of this is just the mental models and then looking at the facilities to do that. And again, I'll just underscore the fact that if you look at those two dimensions and look at the sort of predominant models in both AWS and Azure, they have a lot of those capabilities. I think the best model is a pick the right resource container and granularity, and that could be either passer or IAS and combinations thereof, and then have the ability to basically have scaling and, and control over that the way that it is important to the way your solution works. You know? Yep. Yeah. So. Cool. 
So at the at the end of the day, uh, how should a developer choose? So for our, our, our listeners are out there, they're like, okay, I'm ready to pick. You know, how, how should they choose? Well, I think, like I say, I mean, um, part of it is just sort of looking at the bits of your solution that you want to develop and saying, A, you know, do I have, you know, characteristic things like websites and, and services, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and if, if that's the case, then I think that sort of leads you to a pass model. If that's Greenfield, then definitely uh, you should definitely look at a pass model in Azure. Um, if it's if it's something that you're dealing with already, can you move it into that or can you move it in in an incremental way? So you can move it and, and sort of approach it and say, maybe my first step move is to put it into a, a VM and run it in an IS way that I've been doing that. But now I'm going to sort of over an incremental stage, you know, move that into more of a pass model and parts of that and look at hybridizing the solution. Right. So, um, you know, a again, a characteristic thing that I always was doing as a solutions architect was taking a model and kind of, you know, piece by piece mapping that in. And saying, from a resource point of view, how should that work? Also, from a control and infrastructure point of view, how should that work? Finally, I mean, you alluded to this earlier. I mean, if one of the goals that somebody has is they need to run it, you know, potentially on-prem or in the cloud, you know, you want to pick a platform that is going to be able to support, you know, those kinds of models in as transparent a way as possible. And maybe sometimes that's leveraging on-prem resources like an on-prem active directory or some other resource or something. And so I think, you know, looking at the, the platforms that actually facilitate that in an easier way or more supported way is going to say, you know, on the collection of requirements that I've got, you know, that's what I need to, you know, choose on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and tooling and everything, too. I mean, like as we said earlier, I mean, uh, are you familiar with, uh, you know, the kind of tooling that, that typically gets leveraged? I mean, if somebody goes up to AWS, I mean, a classic thing, by the way, there would be people who would go and start doing things in AWS who weren't familiar with the tooling, right? I mean, it was a you know the value of the cloud and all that stuff. But now I'm dealing with a whole other, new other tool set, right? I'm you know now I'm doing stuff in Eclipse, um, you know I'm doing command line yeah. stuff, you know all over the place, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, and if that's if that's going to be a big disruption to how you understand how things work, there's you know value to saying you know how do I pick something that looks familiar and works familiar to what I've got? So perfect. Uh, anything else? Any final comments before we move on? Let me just uh, check here and see if I've got any notes. Um, okay. I think that's pretty much it. I mean, I'll just, I guess I'll just leave with this that is that, you know, again, I've, I, I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think AWS is a really, you know, capable platform and there's obviously lots of people doing stuff on it. So right, want, right. You know, kind of, yeah, it's, it's obviously not completely broken. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to walk away from this giving anybody the impression that, you know, that's, no, that it's that, a, it's a great platform. Yeah. Um, but I'll say this, um, the trajectory, uh, and that's, again, that's the reason why I rejoined Microsoft is that the trajectory of change yeah, in Microsoft yep. is rapid. Um, and it's remarkable how things have changed internally in terms of speed of agility and everything since I left. Um, and I got a lot of, you know, that going on at AWS and I see that happening now at Microsoft. Um, it's really, it's really encouraging. Um, you know, I think, you know, the fact is we kind of woke up and smell of coffee. The other thing is that I know that there's been this historic history around passes being, you know, the target model. Yes, we shall try for that. And I really personally think that there's there's a lot of value in in IAS as an approach, and or a hybrid model as an approach, right? I mean, I think there's a, there's a huge value in in looking at both of these options, and I think we're doing a lot of stuff on the IAS side to 
do all the stuff that, that people need to do there. And, and, and nobody should look at that as being like a bad way to do cloud. You know, right. that well, businesses have to keep running. Right. No, exactly. So anyway, perfect. That's my, okay. That's my soapbox on that. So, <laughs> okay, perfect. Carl, what do we got for the app of the week? We have two apps of the week this week. The first one is called bounce for band yep. by, uh, Carl Robinson. And this is a game that uh, you use your Microsoft band as a controller for. So uh, the premise is pretty simple. You have a ball that's bouncing up and down and a floor is moving underneath it. And occasionally a hole will scroll across and you have to twist your wrist to avoid the holes. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. So, yeah. So, so this is pretty cool. If you have a band, um, I highly recommend it. Um, it's free right now. What a good so demonstration too of the band. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, there's more, you know, uses for it than, you know, people may initially see. And I know that the the band team as well is just constantly iterating their SDK and giving more and more features out via their APIs. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, Carl did a really good job and it's not just because he has an awesome first name. (laughs) I was thinking that that was, that was it. Nah. Yeah. Uh, the other app of the week that we have, in case you don't have a band, is uh, yesterday Microsoft announced their Hyperlapse. Finally, app. I've been waiting for this yeah. one. Yeah, I saw it, a, a demo of it, qu- you know, quite a few months back. But now, uh, if you have a Windows phone or on Windows, or even the Android uh, has the Hyperlapse app, and what this essentially does is, if you take a video and you speed it up through traditional mean- means, it gets pretty jumpy and it just doesn't look right. Uh, they've provided a bunch of smoothing to it that yeah. kind of takes ma- makes your sped up uh, video just look amazing. Yeah, we're never going to do this justice. Just go to the we'll have a link to the show notes and just go watch the video and it will absolutely blow your mind. There is there's no other way to explain it. Just go just go watch it. it this thing is just like it's like magic. I mean, it's mapping out the scene and then it's able to do like frame interpolation, all this other cool stuff. And it it just it is so freaking cool. And it looks like, so you mentioned there's a, there's a windows app, there's a windows phone, uh, you can get it on Android, but it's also part of, um, uh, there's a service within Azure media services as well. So you can actually send your, uh, videos to an API and have them be processed, which I think is really cool. I think, I think, um, you know, all, all these types of apps need to have the API exposed as, as soon as possible. And it's pretty cool that they're exposing it from day one. Uh, okay. And then Kevin, we play a game here. Basically, this is real easy. I need you to pick a number between one and four, four, four. Okay. Would you rather have a private jet and pilot ready to use whenever you like, or have parents who own a major league baseball team? (laughs) This is a game for kids, by the way. (laughs) Uh, number one for sure. Okay. (laughs) Private jet and pilot. That would would be really cool. That'd be awesome. Okay. Carl. Do I get it? Do I get it? No, there's the, you, uh, you don't uh, win. Okay, you win. Yeah, you won. You I won. thought I was going to get a ding, 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 ding. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What do you What do you pick, Carl? I'll take number one. Number one. Uh. Okay. Would you rather be in a deep lake five miles from shore in a rowboat with a slight but steady leak, or be in a hot air balloon with one mile high with a slight but steady leak? Well, I, I would choose the second one. I, I think that if you have a slight but steady leak, you know, you're going to get to ground yeah, eventually. You're gonna, yeah, yeah. You're not, yeah, you're I'm not, not sure. dying of, you know, drowning. I'm, I'm not sure if I could paddle that far that fast with a constantly filling boat okay. getting heavier. Okay. Does Carl win? Here we go. Oh, no. Yeah, that's my no button. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, Kevin, where can people find you? Oh, Twitter? 
Well, wherever, or wherever. If they, if they okay. want more information, if they want more Kevin goodness, where can um, they get you? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> my Twitter handle is Kev Whitkoff. Oh, hey, and you're a, you, you tweet all the time. It looks like, and yeah, I'm just like a madman, as you can tell. <laughs> um, uh, my Microsoft email address is K E W I T T at Microsoft.com. Okay. That's yep. pretty brave. <laughs> and Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at WPDevGuy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Okay. And uh, you can find me at YTechie.com or at Twitter at Twitter.com slash YTechie. So Kevin, thank you so much for coming on and talking about hey. Azure versus AWS. I had a blast. Good. Well, thanks for having me. It's, it's been fun. Be sure to subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Visit us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments, check out our links, show notes, and more. Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. You can send us your comments and feedback directly to feedback at msdevshow.com. 